to the Scaling Japan podcast, a podcast about how to grow your business from $100,000 and beyond, and beyond in the land of the rising sun. Welcome to the Scaling Japan podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Bettino. And on today's episode, we have Vincent Nicole to talk about navigating the Japanese distribution system. He is a co-founder at Gourmet Pro, the largest food and beverage consulting network in Japan, and has more than 15 years of experience in the food and beverage space in Japan. I have invited Vincent to help us understand and navigate the Japanese distribution system more effectively. Vincent, it's great to have you on the podcast. And could you please introduce yourself and Gourmet Pro? Hi, Tyson. Thanks a lot for inviting me first and for this great introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here with you on Scaling Japan. And uh, I'm also looking forward to connect with the community. I've been, as you explained, you know, the co-founder and the chief strategy officer at Gome Pro, which is the largest food and beverage consulting network in Japan. Hopefully soon in Asia Pacific, as we are expanding in new uh, geographies. On my side, basically, I've been supporting leading food and beverage companies with their expansion and their market entry in Japan. So I've been very much focused on the Japanese market. And I started my career in this industry like 15 years ago, as you said. I started as a marketing executive in the dairy and in the beer business, where I used to focus a lot on product development and go-to-market execution, which is one of the topics we will discuss today. And in the last years, I've been uh, working as a consultant and an advisor uh, with a focus on route to market, commercial and distribution strategies, strategic partnerships as well. And I co-founded Gourmet Pro three years ago, which gave me the opportunity to work with lots of different businesses entering in the Japanese market. And somehow this gave me also a broader and at the same time, a deeper point of view on the product market fit and also on the go-to-market execution. I'm quite connected also with a network of founders, especially in the alcoholic beverage, but I'm not uh, doing active mentoring at the moment. Just a few words on Gourmet Pro. We are the largest food and beverage consulting network with uh, 50 freelance experts on board uh, who are supporting a dozen of projects monthly across uh, marketing, market entry, market intelligence, business development, innovation, etc. We have a very broad scope of projects and also a broad number of clients from the top, you know, food and beverage global leaders to uh, fast growing food tech startups. We are also active in market intelligence with our newsletter Market Shake and in open innovation, uh, supporting a growing community of startups, VCs and accelerators. We will link to your website and the newsletter in the show notes below. Talking to people about like, oh, who should I talk to about like distribution? And they're like, oh, you got to talk to Vincent. And I checked you on like, oh my God, you're co-founders with my buddy, Ugo. <laughs> exactly, so it was, uh, yes. It was a nice coincidence. I was listening also to a few podcasts, you know, and I found it very interesting. And especially I think the timing was good with you also interviewing uh, Timothy Connor last time on the product market fit. Yes. So uh, I'm very happy to have this session to, together today. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, for the listeners, we did an episode on product market fit for the Japanese market uh, with Timothy Connors. And we went really deep into like all the factors to really think about your product. And for this episode, 
we're going on the assumption that you have product market fit and the next stage is getting distribution. And a common problem I see is as a distribution channel opens up, a lot of companies doing market enter, entering the Japan market, they sometimes jump onto the first opportunity that comes because they probably don't know all the distribution channels available. And even if you were to get one, like, you know, how do you negotiate it? What's the pros and cons of each? And uh, Vincent is going to help us to dive deep into that. Starting off, I guess my first question would be, what is the difference between product market fit versus go-to market fit? Yeah, so I think like here we can also together coin a new world, maybe which could be like the product distribution fit or the product channel fit. The way I see it is that somehow every founder understands that the distribution is critical to scale the business. Uh, but exactly as you say, you know, founders tend to be very sharp when it's come to consumer needs and the product, etc. But quite loose when it's come to the distribution fit. I think, in my opinion, that that will be at least the point of view I would like to develop today. The go-to-market fit, which is basically the right equation in between, again, like sorry to introduce different concept, but again, the route to market, which is what will be the intermediates that will allow you to put. Uh, your product in the right channels, but which also include all the tactical, promotional, for example, commercial also way of expanding your distribution. And of course, uh, the go-to market is also related to the marketing activity. So there are a number of topics here uh, which are related to the go-to market fit. But I would like to say that somehow this thinking, this even like strategic thinking on the go-to market fit should be something that founders need to start thinking when they are working hard on their product market fit assessment. Because I think like one of the first reasons is that this is not only like the distribution is not only like impacting your sales, it's impacting directly, obviously your product potentially or package size, for example, pricing as well, but also your brand experience, possibly. Buying a product in a discount store, for example, or buying a product in a department stores is not the same brand experience. And also, to me, it feels that the channel's fit, the channel strategy also impacts your brand equity sometimes. Take an example of the wine and spirit business, for example, where if you sell in nightclubs, your brand will be perceived as a party brand, as a nightlife brand. And sometimes, you know, this is not exactly the equity you wanted to build. And sometime in the future, this could also prevent you to build like broader occasion. So to me, I think like Timothy described very well the product market fit. Obviously, you know, it starts from the value proposition, the consumer needs, the problem, you know, uh, the solution, the value proposition, etc., etc. But at the end of this uh, cycle, actually, um, it's critical to think about the channel fit, the distribution fit. And for me, this is not something which is separated from the product market fit assessment, as you understand. Thanks for explaining that. And I think you explained it very well. And it makes perfect sense that with the example you gave about having your beverage featured in uh, clubs, it could be a distribution strategy that works, but it might not match with your corporate branding and image. So it might not actually be a go-to market fit. You mentioned, I think, uh, how mapping your distribution fit is a key component. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to elaborate more on that? Yes, no, I think like the starting point of this is exactly what you described, you know, the fact that founders will jump on the first opportunity 
they went to a trade show, they met a, a buyer, they suddenly, you know, uh, change their mind and they will start to sell their product in a specific chain, for example. The reality of this is, as you describe, there is a bias also, which is that most, especially I will say like non-Japanese founders, they tend to have a limited understanding of the distribution in Japan. So here my push will be, how can you broaden your understanding of the potential distribution channels where if you put this uh, on the spreadsheet, for example, you will have maybe on the left side, the, the largest, like the key channels, for example, in the food and beverage business, that will be retail, uh, food service. And then you will divide this into supermarket, convenience store, blah, blah, blah. You have, you know, your own typology and eh, depending on your industry, but then also trying to put here a list of key accounts, a list of chains, for example, to get a sense of the number of stores, to get a sense also of the geography. So what I'm describing here is a map of your battlefield, basically. It's not your map. This is not where you want to play. It's just like you need to have a broader map that will inform you where you need to play. And I think here the important is to be exhaustive enough, including also sometimes, you know, acquiring some data, working with an expert, for example, and to understand uh, fully the distribution, but at least to have this map. And then starting from this map, to put some criteria, which will be again and different between uh, depending on your business, which could be related to the distribution fit and eh, will be also related to your product, of course, your price, etc., etc., the type of consumer that you are targeting. But you can have here like different criteria, and then this gives you a short list of channels. And I think the next step will be how can you build synergies across these different top priority channels, or even like between these top priority accounts. For example, if you have like different product portfolio, if one portfolio is more like a B2C portfolio and the other one is the B2B portfolio, you want to nail this down into like specific channels, for example. For me, that's the kind of like the foundation work of the go-to-market strategy, basically, because it gives you the map and then you can start building your own go-to-market map, which is, uh, as I explained, you know, uh, a short list, basically. Gotcha. That makes perfect sense. Starting off with the blueprint or the map of your plan, then coming up with the tactics to execute upon them afterwards. Yes. I think what could be interesting also is that it's not just something which is on a piece of paper, you know, if you have the opportunity to meet some of those, you know, the chains, the buyers, for example, you bring your map when you are meeting someone in industry just to, to have also a conversation, which include also this kind of qualitative element. And then I think what is interesting also is to not only have a two-dimension map, but a three-dimension map where you start also including perspective about who will be the intermediates, who are the distributors, the wholesalers, for example, that have access to this specific distribution. And that's also something this, which is critical to build, you know, a, a go-to-market strategy. Uh, that sounds like a great tactical advice. And I guess my take on it is I'm working with was it a Japanese company. Sometimes their first thought would be like, does this person actually understand the Japanese market or are they just trying to push what they made somewhere else into Japan? But if you come into the meeting with the map of your go-to-market strategy, they can see how they fit in it, see any incongruencies or maybe a kind of friction points, but you'll really give them the impression that you have done your research on Japan and that you're serious. Of course, you know, it, it will avoid also that there are misunderstanding, you know, in the future about like the distributor, like channel fit, et cetera, et cetera. But no, I completely agree with you. I think like this is also a way to take and to demonstrate also lots of leadership 
towards distributors. I think it's also, um, it's show respect, the fact that, you know, you are serious, as you say, you know, uh, about entering the market. And then I think like in the future, I really like definitely invite, you know, the community, like especially the founders to spend enough time on this because basically that will guide also their decision in the future. It's not only like the beginning of the journey. I think understanding the distribution is also something that helps a lot, you know, the scaling phases later in the business. And spending appropriate time on this is, in my opinion, as important as understanding, you know, uh, your consumers, working on your product, et cetera, et cetera. And I think with that being said, I want to move on to ask about, like, what are some common problems that companies doing market entry face regarding distribution and just market entry in general? Yes. In Japan, what is interesting is that the Japanese market is a very large market. I think there is a first issue or challenge, which is making sure you have the right market entry or the right go-to-market strategy for the right size of the business that you are targeting. And here I'm talking about the distribution. I'm talking about potentially also the targeted consumer groups right, in terms of demographics. Right? Are you targeting uh, 100,000 people or 10 million people? Of course, that's not the same scale. And also in terms of geographies because Japan is a large market and you don't have to approach it assuming that you will target 99% of the population or nationwide uh, distribution coverage. One of the agile way to do market entry is actually to think around the geographies on market shake. We did a few articles also on uh, using Fukuoka as a market entry uh, hub to do like test marketing. I think it's one of these ideas where instead of, you know, allocating lots of resources around Tokyo, et cetera, et cetera, which sounds to be like the regular way or the right way of doing this, you start from a smaller region, which still represents, you know, one to two million inhabitants. So it's, it's large enough for lots of business. It's meaningful enough for lots of startups, at least to start approaching the consumers. And also this local approach sometimes help you to basically like build your proof of concept towards the distributors, like basically being successful with the right rate of sales, for example, in a specific supermarket or a specific retailer will really help you expand the distribution in the same geographies. And then once you have a success story to communicate, you know, it's easy then also to move into the other geographies, especially in Japan with the big area being Tokyo, Yokohama, and then the Kansai, of course, uh, Nagoya is also a good place to start. But cities like Fukuoka, Sendai, uh, Shizuoka as well are very relevant also for this kind of uh, test market or, or let's say agile market entry area. That is a great article and we'll definitely link it in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scaling Japan. In addition to serving as your fine host, I also provide advisory and coaching services to business owners who want to 2x, 5x, and even 10x their business. So stop holding your company and your team and your employees back and let me help you and your company scale. Find more information at scalingyourcompany.com. Now back to the episode. And yeah, what are some other common problems? So one of the common problems is related to the value chain. To be a little bit specific here, it's clear that when you are basically like developing your product, you are taking some assumption about, you know, the level of profit and margin that will be captured, you know, along the value chain. 
the risk is that if you don't clarify, you know, your own go-to-market strategy at an early stage, you are likely to build a price structure, a pricing that won't fit with your future go-to-market strategy. What I mean here is that, for example, if you want to be in convenience store, in department stores, they will take a 30% margin, 35% margin even. While if you want to target a supermarket, they will take like 20%. This applies, of course, to any kind of you know, channel they have. They will take like different margins and the cost structure will also be different. The risk that you have is that if you don't clarify where you are going to play, you might have a great product with the wrong, let's say, price structure, the wrong pricing, because you won't be able to give enough margin to incentivize you know, the retailer to carry your product. Or you will assume that you will work directly with the retailers, but then you realize that for to scale your business, you need to work through the wholesalers. And you will realize too late that actually there is no margin left uh, for the wholesaler to take uh, over the distribution. So this is a little bit technical, but that's very common for like founders. I've, I had this discussion with many people who realized that, you know, they started the direct to consumer business. The margin is good, but then the pricing is not consistent if they want to expand the business in other channels. So this could be a big barrier actually for your expansion in the future. Other problem that we often see is I think like that's related to the psychology of the founder somehow. I, I'm sure Tyson, you will relate with this. Some of the founder I met are over optimistic about their product, you know, over enthusiastic, you know, they believe that they have the best product and basically, you know, retailers will be more than happy to list the product. I think like this kind of dream usually do not come true. So I think like here, there is a need also for the founders to make sure that they have the right tools to motivate the retailer, especially when it's come to a promotional budget, some kind of incentive, the right, let's say, customer story as well, and make sure that you know, they are not over-enthusiastic about their product. On the other side, I think there are another stereotype, which are the founders who are too transactional. They assume that, you know, if we have a budget, if we incentivize the retailer, they will list the product for sure. This is not true as well. I think there is something in addition to that, which is a lot about making sure that as part of your customer story, you really identify, you know, what is the top priority on the retailer, on the buyer, on the wholesaler, for example, uh, executive table. So that could be things that are very, let's say, far away from your product. Maybe at this moment, this particular wholesaler are focusing all their effort towards delivering like more sustainable product, for example. Some of the retailers will be focusing a lot on their own e-commerce, for example. I think it's important also to understand what could be the angles, what could be like this kind of key topics that you can use to convince also those distributors, those retailers to list your product. And I think here it required also a fair understanding of what is this company's, you know, uh, strategy. And I invite everyone also to spend appropriate time also on reading, you know, the industry news, chatting about this with people around them, etc., making sure that they really look at companies, not only just checking the website and, you know, the number of stores, but making sure so that they have at least a small understanding of what are the top priorities for the manager in this company. One of the things that kind of gave me the wow moment when talking to you was the way you described, I think, one of the common mistakes being that people don't craft a story about the why for the distributor and partner as a key part of the strategy. When I do partnerships, I obviously talk about what, what are the benefits for them, like how I can support them. But uh, what really impacted me is like how you phrase it as them being really a key part of the strategy. 
while most people tend to focus uh, when they talk with companies, they focus too much on the product or just trying to make the pitch, but really crafting a story about the why for them. Yeah, that was a wow moment for me. No, it's interesting that I think like this is also something that you've experienced in the past. We all tend to do that, I think, you know, we are all like trying to sell a product. Some good salespeople are trying to sell themselves, I will say, like rather than a product. Especially, I, can, I feel this also with my consultant practice, but also like as part of Gourmet Pro, I'm doing lots of case interviews with candidates. And we have a few case studies where it's quite critical for them to understand what are the strategic synergies they could build with their distributor. And often it has nothing to do with the product. This kind of example, which are basically, again, the company willing to enter in a new channel, for example, the company uh, working on their own digital transformation, for example, the company being uh, under uh, restructuring and having also to define, you know, better priorities, etc. If you could craft your selling story with some of these elements where we have like one, even if it's a PowerPoint presentation, no, you have one slide about how can our product help you also achieve your own sustainability goals, for example. How can we help you, you know, achieving your goals in the e-commerce, whatever. It feels like, you know, the empathy that you can build also, especially for a first meeting, will be completely different if you get this right, as opposed as, as you say, you know, just trying to pitch. That's clear. For everyone, it's a difficult exercise. And for everyone, I think it's critical to just step back a little bit and try to identify what could be these strategic synergies, which apply to small companies as large companies, you know. If you talk with the company owner, maybe you know that he's struggling at the moment because he has too much inventory and somehow you will craft your proposal around how our product can help you also better manage your inventory or whatever. So sometimes it's not related to the size of the company, but really what the people you are meeting have in mind. And that's almost a sales job that you need to get right, of course. I can make a good to great pitch, but I think after hearing this, it kind of made me think like, okay, how can I actually go from 85 to 90% to maybe 95%? <laughs> it's like, cool, this is it. And uh, so for the go-to market models, uh, there's multiple go-to market models and uh, I'll kind of let you lead the way, but yeah. So could you tell us several go-to market models, I guess the pros and cons and how to set up the deal? Yeah, so I think like the first go-to-market models are the most obvious. I think like everyone has this in mind. The first question we often have also is, should I work with one distributor or with several distributors? Let's start maybe from the, let's say the sole distributor model, which is basically you having an exclusive distribution agreement with one distributor. This is quite common for imported products, especially for uh, in the food and beverage. If you manufacture your product in Japan, there is also an option to work the same way, even with a domestic wholesaler, for example, giving them a similar like exclusivity. And in my opinion, this is also the best model if your product portfolio is limited, because if you have only one brand, one product range, basically the what is interesting with this model is that you will be able to remove lots of complexity in terms of management, in terms of resource allocation. It's obviously easier to build a stronger relationship with one distributor, with the, the team, with the people on the ground as well, and because you can spend more time with them, but also to build your own credential, you know, within this organization. It's also easier in terms of operations, especially like if you think about supply chain, back office, order, inventory management, it's easier to work with only one company. 
the limit of this distribution model is that it works well if your distributor is acting as a partner, as a real partner. And if you share like similar ambition, not exactly the same ambition, but fairly similar ambitions. And if both partners are capable to nourish also the relationship by sharing the right level of uh, issues, by being honest also about the challenge, by making sure that they are, you know, addressing the opportunities, for example. And it works if your brand is also part of their top priority. Uh, the reality is that often this is not the case or this is not uh, happening this way. And usually there are compromises, there are frustration, there are up and downs, etc., etc. So if I compare this to a model where there are several distributors, I think, again, let's say that you have like two different product portfolio. Uh, one is uh, for professional. The other one is for consumers. It's clear that when you will approach uh, the distributor, you will understand that maybe they won't be able to put your product into uh, specific channels that are, again, if you if you did your, your own, you know, go-to-market strategy preparation right, you will have understand that you need to be in specific channels that somehow the distributor you are not approaching are not able to cover. In this case, you are likely to work with two distributors, maybe one for the retail channel, for example, another one for more this kind of like B2B channel. It could be like also hybrid model where you take care of part of the distribution. I think one common example is founders of startup, like starting a business in as a direct-to-consumer business. And basically, they will keep managing this while they will give their more traditional distribution to a distributor sometime. And... In terms of how does it work in terms of managing the deal, I think in the first case, you need to pick up the right distributor from the beginning. So again, it's critical that you have your shortlist. For example, the way that our experts, you know, at Gourmet Pro work on this when they work on market entry strategy is that they will define very clearly the criteria and they will make sure that they understand very clearly, again, what are the channels covered by this specific distributor. And also they will try to get a sense of what could be the level of priority of this business within the distributor business, which is something, you know, things that you can also assess by just having a number, like the level of sales we are targeting will represent 5% of their net sales or will represent 50% of their net sales. And you can, you can see that two different things. So I think like establishing the criteria are very important. Then it's, again, it's meeting people, you know, maybe you will help aim for to work with only one distributor. And during the first, let's say, serious conversation, again, you will understand that this distributor is rejecting one of your product range, for example, even for good reason. This distributor will acknowledge that they have no opportunity to develop specific channels so that it's going to be a linear approach, you know, where instead of, you know, you were trying to have only one distributor, but you will learn that actually two distributors will make more sense. I think it's, it's both being strategic in terms of having a scenario in mind, a clear scenario in mind, and then test the hypothesis also as part of the initial discussion with the distributor. The last advice on this will be that often, you know, we lack transparency. I think it's important from the beginning that if you had in mind a future opportunity to give part of your distribution to a different distributor, I think this should be clarified from the beginning with the first distributor. And actually there are lots of issues like this where the exclusivity was not something that was written anywhere, but they were a kind of gentleman agreement. And then the situation changed, the agenda changed, etc. 
and somehow you know this can impact of course the trust the relationship if the partner feel that there is no uh, loyalty so it's important that if a distributor address that they will not sell your product in a specific channel that you jump on this explain that you will give yourself the opportunity to give this part of the business to a different distributor and it made perfect sense that because both distributors might be selling to the same companies exactly and if you change you know the perspective if you are i mean like if you are supplying these distributors they might be supplying also your competitor and that's the same feeling you know for these distributors maybe they are competitors together so that you need to be very very clear on what you are giving to each of these distributors and the advice here is really like to have a very clear line never distribute the same product to the same channels through uh, two distributors it doesn't make sense even if you are not happy with one of the distributor i mean stop working with this distributor but do not create competition on the same channels and on the same product in your own distribution it doesn't make sense it makes sense sometimes for there are some you know examples but usually it's not a good equation for anyone have you ever found yourself having trouble creating a business plan do you pretty much operate on a day to day or week to week basis creating confusion and chaos in your organization if that sounds like you i recommend you join my entrepreneur bootcamp in my bootcamp you'll set an achievable but challenging revenue target for the current or following fiscal year and we will create a business plan to make it a reality see more in the show notes below and now back to our episode thanks for sharing that uh, what are some other go to market models if you think about the first one you know which, which is this um, privileged let's say uh, relationship with one distributor this could turn into you know what we call like a strategic partnership where there could be different intensity of the partnership itself one is a joint venture for example which is a model quite common in some industries of course if you have a product that could not be imported in japan for example or if there is issues about like the shelf life whatever if you are a startup and you don't have the right level of fund to invest in the business of course like creating a joint venture with a large japanese company will be a very effective way to enter the market what is interesting with the joint venture is really like the opportunity to build complementarities the most common i think example is obviously you know one partner with superior like capabilities around the r&d for example a technology for example and then the other partner you know with a superiority around like distribution or marketing the problem is maybe this let's say complementarities are going to evolve over time and usually a joint venture is something where it starts in a very happy way where people are very excited of you know joining their force together and and build something new but usually you know a few years after the partner went to different directions and uh, the complementarities and the synergies are a little bit less interesting for both partners the problem is that this is a long term partnership when you build a joint venture it's very difficult to change this model to something else so that you know it could be very painful to come back to a different go to market uh, model in this case what is interesting is that usually there is a very unbalanced relationship between the partners my example about the startup you know with the large company the problem is that the large company executive may feel that they have more authority to make the decision but sometimes it happen also between a very large international company and very large japanese companies again the wine spirits example diageo was partnering with kirin diageo is the largest spirits company in the world they divorced last year 
And somehow, you know, everyone at Kirin acknowledged that Diageo is an incredible, you know, spirits company and that they have exceptional brands. But at the end of the day, it will always feel to the Kirin manager that Diageo do not understand the Japanese market. In this case, you know, it's sometimes very difficult to kind of align the agenda and the priorities because the relationship is unbalanced in terms of either the way the people understand the market or the way they perceive, you know, uh, the market. It's not only fact-based. I think there are lots of psychological factors here. And uh, this is often the reason for this model to fail, actually, so that there is not like lots of, uh, let's say, uh, success story in joint venture. Other model could be, of course, licensing, for example, or franchising. I, I don't have much experience. So I'm not going to develop too much on this, but it's very common in some industries. Like if you think about like food service, uh, restaurants, cafe, for example, they are likely to work with the local partner with the licensing agreement. I think if it's common in your industry, it's really effective to enter the market and to scale also the business. If this licensing model is not common in your industry, I think like the concern will be that you will spend too much time setting up this licensing agreement. And it won't make sense really to do that because one of the, the benefits of the licensing agreement is the fact that it could be very agile. It could be like quick also uh, to start the business. If you take like one year, two years, you know, to build this kind of licensing agreement, of course, you are losing like all the agility. And in this case, you've better like, you know, just like try with another model that will be more agile and more flexible for you. The last maybe model, which is also quite common, is some kind of like hybrid model between an exclusive distribution agreement locally, but also like part of the business being managed through a, a direct entity in Japan. If you think about like my example about the direct to consumer, for example, business, and then a partnership in the regular distribution, I think this is quite effective. But this is also something that is common for like imported products where for example, the one company will establish their own operations, their own subsidiary. They will take care of the import. Sometimes they will take care of some specific channels and they will give the rest of the distribution to a distributor. Again, if the rule is clear, I think that could work. Usually this hybrid model are based on the ability to cover like more channels and the ability also to capture more value for the company also establishing their own operation. Clearly, you know, uh, if you are leading food company, for example, you've better being part of the local value chain, having your own import operations because you will capture more value as part of the value chain. Based on my experience, it's also a good way to keep some bargaining power also with your partner because having local operation uh, is something that you can leverage, especially if you have like difficult discussion because the local operation could be a direct threat also to your partner so that it's also a way you take more leadership in the relationship sometimes. So I think like, yes, discover like the key go-to-market models. Of course, there are more like creative way of doing this. Uh, there are other models that I didn't introduce based on different industries, but uh, this is exactly the kind of things that you can list and try to figure out, you know, which model will better work with your own distribution strategy. And again, I think it's good also to go through the value chain. It's not only uh, an exercise about the distribution fit. It's also an exercise about founding how to capture more value, having a, a quite precise understanding of what could be the price and margin structure for each of these different scenarios. 
No, that was very awesome. Kind of like the general point is really trying to understand what the other party wants and how they can benefit from it. And then try to see how it matches around what you want to do. And let's say with your plan and map it out. And I think if you kind of just follow that general format, whatever market model you go, you will decrease the likelihood of making a mistake. And in my case, I've only had experience with doing a joint venture with another company. We're very involved together. And yeah, in that case, I mean, the key point was really understanding what were the benefits of this joint venture for them. Uh, also kind of setting very clear what things we can do, can't do, and just kind of think of all the future potential areas of conflict and just trying to get that out in the initial agreement beforehand. So we're just all clear and we're all on the same page. Yes, no, interesting. I think like you did it right because usually people will not list like the potential issues. They will just like look at the positive side of it. What you say perfectly makes sense because usually it's not the potential area of conflict is not something that you want to discover after. It's really something that you want to capture in the role and responsibilities in the ways of working at the very early stage of the relationship. The last thing here, I don't know what was your experience about this, but I feel also that there is cultural gaps, not only about the culture, but, you know, Japan versus uh, any kind of countries, but also like, you know, corporate culture sometimes. When it's a, a strategic partnership, of course, this kind of gap will be visible. When you have a joint venture, somehow, you know, the intensity of the relationship make this gap even more visible. Sometimes, you know, it's also a source of higher frustration for people to feel that they don't understand each other. That's very common with the joint venture model, as far as I see it. Thank you so much for today. And uh, we are actually doing another episode with Vincent uh, coming up in the next four to six weeks. So please be on the lookout for how he's leveraged crowdfunding as a nice market entry strategy. And yeah, so I guess, do you have any requests for the listeners and where can we find you? But first of all, thanks a lot for today. Really happy to share also a few tips with you and with your audience. I'm mostly on LinkedIn. We are very active also with Gourmet Pro on LinkedIn. So I'm sure you can find us. I definitely recommend to have a look at Market Shake, which is our market intelligence newsletter for everyone in the food and beverage industry in Japan, especially. And then we have also a website, which is uh, gourmetpro.co, where you can also like contact us if you have any kind of project you want to discuss with, if you are looking at some uh, expert for your project, or uh, just to connect with us on the website or on LinkedIn. Yeah. Awesome. And we'll also link to the article on Fukuoka. Yes, that would be great. <laughs> thank you. So thank you so much and have a great day.